Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 837 with Corey Manicone. But I, I, back to your original question, uh, it, it really starts with the lease. It's got to make sense from day one there. If it doesn't, your back's just up against the wall. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Yo, Unstoppables, I want to use this ad space to let you know about an affiliate relationship I have with the company Mies. Actually, Mies has been a past sponsor, but they've adopted this really great affiliate program, and I want to give it a shot. But here's the thing. I won't get credit for your referral unless you use my specific, special, unique Link and that link is getmes.com slash unstoppable. So if you listen to this ad and you want me's, make sure you use that link. And instead of actually uh, recording a new ad, I really like the first one I did with them. So I'm just going to roll it and uh, let the ad work. It's magic. Here it is. Here are four reasons why you need me's in your restaurant. One, it's the most accurate recipe costing tool on the planet. Never again waste time trying to find yields and converting unit measures or creating extra sub recipes just to account for yield updates because Mies has a database of thousands of ingredients and prep actions with yields and conversions built right into the interface. So you get immediate output of your costs and your conversions. That's huge. Number two, you will train your staff the right way and save countless hours your team sees in real time updates of all the recipe content plus you can send notifications and answer questions directly through me's quickly and easily create slideshows with video and image so you can show your team exactly what they need when they need it here's the third reason why you need me's in your restaurant you will reduce waste and execute with consistency me's enables you to make precisely the amount of food you need and that's because every ingredient has automated unit conversions Tell Mies how many portions you want, watch your recipe scale automatically. Tell Mies how much yield you want, watch it scale automatically. You can even enter the amount of ingredients you have on hand and then watch the recipe scale automatically. Here's the fourth and final reason why you need Mies in your restaurant. It organizes and shares your content like never before. Mies is like Google Drive specifically for the culinary operation. Here's your call to action. Go to GetMies. That's M-E-E-Z dot com slash unstoppable and make sure you mention restaurant unstoppable when signing up to get three free months when you get the annual business plan. Get on it. Restaurant owners know it can be almost impossible to keep everything up to date, even making adjustments on your menu. And I know it's probably one of the most important marketing tools out there, if not the most important marketing tool. That's why I'm so happy to introduce to you Pop Menu, the restaurant tool to turn more first-time guests into regulars. Pop Menu seriously is the full digital solution for independent restaurant owners. When you invest in Pop Menu, you get a dynamic interactive menu that hooks your customers from the start. And let me tell you, they really do love that review feature. You get a mobile-friendly website, and I cannot stress to you enough how many people miss the importance of a solid website. 
And you also get marketing and integrations to build long-lasting relationships with your guests. What are you waiting for? As you can see, Pop Menu gives restaurateurs all the tools they need to put the focus back on what matters the most, the people and the food. Trust me, if you are a restaurant owner, you need to check out Pop Menu to take your business to the next level. For a limited time only, my listeners get $100 off their first month plus an unchanging lifetime rate. Go to popmenu.com slash unstoppable. That's $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant unstoppable, listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. What's going on, Unstoppables? We have a great show for you today. We're talking to Corey Manicone, and Corey came to me by way of a few people, honestly. His name came up a lot over the past year and a half, especially around the, the conversations regarding ghost kitchens. He was or he seemed to be on all the panels. Uh, I saw his name popping up time and time again from publications around the industry as being a the go-to person to get answers and information around ghost kitchens. And ghost kitchens, I mean, I'll be honest, I've been kind of staying away from the subject because one, not enough time, in my opinion, has honestly elapsed to have a clear leader in that segment. And the other thing is not enough time has elapsed for us to know what kind of validity this segment has. And I know everyone thinks the future is ghost kitchens and you know, restaurants as we traditionally know them are gone. I don't think that's the case. I think restaurants as we know them will never be exactly the same, but they're not going to be gone. And I don't think the future is completely ghost kitchens. I think what we're looking at is a hybrid of the things we learned during COVID-19, I don't think they're going to go away. I think they're going to stay a part of business, but they're not going to be all of business. People need to see people. It's it's in our DNA. It's in our, our hard wiring. We're never going to not want to be around other people and break bread with other people. We like to meet strangers, especially younger people. We want to go out. We want to meet our person. And I mean, yeah, we can do that online today, but ultimately you want to meet in person and, and these things happen in restaurants as we've always known them. So I'm, I'm interested in the world of ghost kitchens, but at the same time, you know, I think that everyone who's telling you that ghost kitchens are the future and that you need to completely change everything you do and listen to exactly what they say. Usually they have something to sell. So be wary. I think Corey has absolutely pulled out in front of other people who are doing 
ghost kitchens as the or as one of the authorities on the subject so today we're talking to him and special thanks so thank you to anybody who has referred Corey to me and a little bit more about Corey. he is from fort collins colorado he worked with enterprise and otterbox and in 2015 Corey joined new york city based relay delivery as the first employee helping define the optimal delivery playbook used by hundreds of restaurants, he saw that there was a need in the market or to further enhance the off-premise business model for restaurants. He co-founded Zool in 2018, New York City's first ghost kitchen solution. Today, Zool licenses their proprietary ghost kitchen technology, allowing restaurant operators across the country an opportunity to achieve a much improved economic model for delivery while also enhancing the consumer experience. With no further ado, here is Corey Manicone. And with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, co-founder and CEO of Zool, Corey Manicone. Corey, are you feeling unstoppable today? Always. Yes. And I cannot wait to dive into your story. Special thanks to Kyle and Sarah for putting you on my radar. We've been going back and forth now, I want to say for like six months, it feels like. And there's been a lot of people that I've been that I've come across that um, have, I don't know, ideas about the future, uh, visions about the future when it comes to ghost kitchens and virtual kitchens. Uh, but your name keeps coming up as the guy I have to talk to to get the most direct answer about the world of virtual kitchens and ghost kitchens and delivery. So I'm psyched to have you on the show. I have no idea exactly what we're going to cover today, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Yeah. Uh, there's a quote that's always stuck with me since I've been little, and it's actually a quote by Babe Ruth that says, um, you can't beat the person who won't give up. You can't beat the person that won't give up. I mean, pretty straightforward, but why does that resonate with you specifically? Uh, honestly, grit and persistence are, are two characteristics that I think uh, I, I embody uh, quite wholly. Um, and it's, you know, uh, characteristics that I look for in employees and colleagues as well. Um, if there's a will, there's a, a way. Yeah, man. Great way to get this thing started. So you grew up in the restaurant industry. Your parents owned quick service restaurants in Colorado. Uh, at this point in your life, were you thinking you're going to be working in the restaurant industry? Like, when did you know that this is going to be your path? Honestly, it was the the opposite. So <clears throat> backing up to um, uh, a, a bit of historical context. So my father actually worked his way up as a, a line cook out of uh, at a school, not really knowing what to do. He was a line cook at, at, at an IHOP um, and actually worked his way up uh, through the ranks, was overseeing one, then all of a sudden was overseeing about eight throughout the New Mexico and, and Colorado region. Fast forward to, it would have been 98, he actually had the opportunity to buy into the franchise in, in Fort Collins, Colorado. So um, I remember it vividly. It was actually, maybe it was actually 97, now that I say it out loud, because it was about five days after the Broncos won their first Super Bowl, oh. so little ten-year-old Corey was was that was that her Mandy Peyton Manning? No, so no. that was Elway. That was Elway, Elway, wow. Terrell Wait, Davis. This? this would have been ninety-seven. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think it was actually ninety-eight though, because we won the ninety-seven season, but the tech, the Super Bowl technically falls in ninety-eight. Did they win with Manning? 
Once, yeah. That's what. That's what Super I Bowl thought. Fifty. That's right. I'll that's take crazy. it. I got three. Sorry to derail your train of thought. Keep going. <laughs> oh, good. I could talk about that for hours as well. Um, but no. So he ended up buying into the franchise, uh, or was a franchisee rather. Um, incredibly successful. I think he was franchisee of the year a couple of years later in the Rocky Mountain region, um, and ultimately wanted to parlay that success that he found in IHOP into opening up a bar and grill in my hometown, which again is about an hour north of of, of Denver in Colorado. I need to interject real quick because I love that approach. Uh, I think if you're somebody who has zero restaurant experience, but you've always had the dream of opening a restaurant, go find a fast growing franchise. Totally. And, I mean, not, I mean, you're just going to learn systems and processes at the, the top level, you know, and I think it's a great crash course in restaurants. But, yeah. So that path that your dad took is great. Well, and I would actually say it's a, a, a fantastic crash course in just business overall. Um, right. Because again, they give you that playbook to be successful and you follow it and you, you're a good leader, et cetera, yep. et cetera. Um, you learn a lot about just running a business overall. So maybe not just in the restaurant space, but overall entrepreneurship. Um, anyways, wanted to, to parlay that success into to opening up the bar and grill. Um, this would have been in 2004. So I was about a sophomore in high school at this time. Um, and that's when I began to see just how challenging this industry can truly be to, to, to people. Yeah. Um, and you know, without going into to, to too many details here, uh, when I was a freshman in college, he ended up selling the IHOP to keep the bar and grill afloat, um, ultimately to no avail. So towards the end of freshman year, early sophomore year of, of college, I saw my parents go through some pretty incredible hardships. So I can relate, man. I mean, it's the whole reason why this podcast exists was because my parents, same thing, man, opened a restaurant, you know, had lines out the door, but still struggled to pay the mortgage. Totally. You know, so it's like, what are they doing? Like versus this, this other place on the street that their owners are never there. And, you know, they're able to take vacation. Like, what's going on? So, yep. sorry, keep going. Yeah, so I guess to, back to answer your, your original question, did I know I always wanted to be in the, the restaurant is, industry? It was, it was quite the opposite. Um, because as you can imagine, at that time, being in my early days of college, um, kind of vowed to myself that I'd stay as far away from the industry as possible, you know, seeing what my parents went through. Um, that said, as we all know, this industry has got an incredible way of pulling you back. Yeah, in. it really so does. Here we are. Yeah. So you um, graduate uh, from college. Where did you go to school again? I know I saw it on LinkedIn. Was it Colorado State or? Yep, Colorado State. And um, I think was it your first job out of Colorado with Otterbox? Uh, it was actually Enterprise Rent a Car. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So I uh, so Otterbox was literally a, a stone's throw away from Colorado State's campus. And um, this was at the time, if you remember. So I was in college from 06 to, to 2010. But in 07, one of the greatest inventions of all time, the, the iPhone came yeah. out. And at the time, Otterbox had kind of cornered the market um, with their dry boxes for outdoors. So you could go... Yeah, no, sorry. Yeah. I was just checking my phone to see. I usually roll the OtterBox. Nice. It saved my phone multiple times. Totally. Odds are pretty high that you had one. I think they, <laughs> yeah. they dominate the market to this day. But um, I knew that they were primed to really take off and kind of ride the coattails of, of the iPhone. Um by protecting it. So um, I think I ended up applying 16 times. Um, the reason that quote that I said earlier was my favorite is, is actually how I ended cover letters like nine through 16 was, you know, just give me a mop, you know, and I'll quote Babe Ruth here. You can't beat the person who, yeah, who won't give up. It's true. Um, Every time you went back, did you find out? Were you trying to find out why you're getting no's? Were you changing or were you, you just staying the same showing up? Um, it's a great question. I think I actually made the mistake of just applying for any and all job. 
you know, and it, I think to the hiring recruiter, they're like, you know, no intention, no purpose. Yeah. yeah. Are you going to pick a specialty, you know, a, a field within in, in a respective business? Um, all that's to say, so I didn't end up getting the job right out of college. So I, I, I was being recruited by Enterprise Rent-A-Car, which um, incredibly thankful. I think I learned more there in, in the, the year and a half, two years I was there than the four years of business school. So, um, But that said, Otterbox ended up uh, essentially creating a new team, and they called me out of the blue said, yes. hey, you've been applying a bunch. You want to work here? Yeah, cool. Well, before we get into that, I'm curious, um, and I'm kind of kicking myself for not asking when you when it came up. Do you say your, your parents, they closed their restaurant? Yeah. So, I mean, you've been really close to the restaurant industry now for a few years. With all the lessons you've garnered and information you've picked up, reflecting back at what your parents were doing, uh, what what did you learn? And like hindsight being 2020, what do you think that they did wrong? Oh, how much time do we have? <laughs> um, and then it's obviously, you know, that's not a, a knock at my parents. No. I think. I mean, uh, I'll start if you want me to tell you, I mean, to break the ice, <laughs> but um, go for it. Yeah, no, I think honestly where the, the, the crux of, of the issue for my, my, my parents, uh, respective to the second restaurant that they opened, because again, the, the IHOP was a cash cow. So I think looking back at it, they probably would have sold the bar and grill versus the IHOP and it might be a much different story. Yeah, maybe try a new concept yeah. the second time around, keep the cash flow. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't even know if I'd be in the, the restaurant industry if that was the case, though. Or maybe I'd own that IHOP. I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but anyways, um, honestly, everything starts with the lease. You know, the economics have to, to work out there on a price per square foot. And um, looking at the, the, the actual location, and in, in, it was in Windsor, Colorado, where I grew up, um, I think it was like 6,000 square feet, so a pretty decently sized restaurant. And I think it had maybe one tiny window in the front you know the frontage was just horrendous yeah and he he had actually uh, or my parents had actually taken over what was kind of a, a historic restaurant called uh fireside it was like the only restaurant in town etc cetera, etc cetera. my my father actually ch- changed it to fire station i was kind of hoping that the legacy was still going to roll through um and at the time the town was also growing so there was more options and more restaurants you know entering the market and it was kind of just a perfect storm that no one really was ready for yeah uh, um but I, I back to your original question uh it, it really starts with the lease it's got to make sense from day one there if it doesn't your back's just up against the is wall. there a thumb a rule of thumb that you know as far as what you know your lease should be so Yes and no. All I know is that in 2021 and beyond, the smaller format, the better. And we'll get into kind of where I think the, the, the yeah. puck is going, if you will, yeah. if I was to, to use a hockey reference. But, um, you know, with off-premise and everything, the, the, the smaller, the, the better is, is more conducive for me. I can back that up. Yeah. Um, you also mentioned uh, that rental car uh, Hertz. Was it Hertz? Enterprise. Enterprise, yeah, Enterprise yeah. rental car. Um, you said it was like more of an MBA than your actual like business. I don't know. Did you get? You get did you get your MBA? No, no, no. But you got your MBA through Enterprise. So, yeah. what were the the key things that you think you learned as far as business goes from that company? So it's actually very similar to um, owning a, a franchise restaurant. You know, Enterprise is structured and they've got uh, kind of a, a cadence and an order of operations of everyone starts out as as the same employee and you work your way up. But in essence, they throw you the keys to a location. Say, here's you know the keys. Here's the P and L. Here's fifty cars. Go grow it to a hundred. Go grow it to one hundred and fifty. And you're doing the marketing. You're doing the accounting. You're doing everything. 
and um, it, it truly was a, a crash course in entrepreneurship, in my opinion. And incredibly thankful for the opportunity, and I think I'd recommend it to most folks coming out of business school if they have the opportunity. What to was your role? There. Were you running a, a division? So I ended up making it up to assistant manager um, before Otterbox poached me. Uh-huh. Um, but you start out as essentially a management trainee, and I mean, you're doing everything from vacuuming cars to renting cars to... Um, you name it, literally everything. Delivering cars. Delivering cars, <laughs> yeah, to body shops. Um, and yeah, they just, they, they truly gave you the playbook and said, we're here to support you guys if you need it. But, um, you know, we actually, one of my fondest memories throughout my career thus far is working with, uh, uh, to this day, one of my, my mentors, his name's Doug Lobdell. He actually works for Zoom out in, in, in Denver now. Okay. Um, and we had this tiny little branch in our area. And I think when, when we, took it over. He was the manager. I was, I was not even the assistant manager at that time. I was just his employee. Um, but we took it from about 40 cars and we grew it to the second largest in the area, which was like 150. So if you do, uh, you effectively can, can grow your fleet and steal cars from other locations. And that's exactly what we did. And, um, I think we were working 13, 14, 15 hour days, but it was fun because we were growing, um, which is, so, I mean, what did you learn about like culture and like, how did you make it fun? Like, cause work isn't always fun and I'm sure under different leadership, it may have not been fun. What made it fun? Yeah, I, honestly, I think the best, uh, uh, culture is, is bred by success, right? When you're growing and you're doing well, it's tough to not like work. Yeah. Um, so when we saw our, our car count go up day in and, and day out, um, you know, even though the, the hours were long, we were successful. And, you know, you start to get that, that awareness throughout colleagues and the rest of the company. And, you know, it kind of just snowballs. It feels there. good to win. Totally. Right? You get that recognition. You get to get, get seen. And I think that's really what we all, I mean, it's, it's not like sexy to admit, but we all want to be seen. We all want to be valued. We all like, we all have a little bit of an ego, totally. you know, and uh, it's for natural. For worse. Yeah. You know, for some. so when that ego gets stroked with some like, success, you know, it's, it can get addictive, you know, which totally. is what we're going for. Um, so any other th- lessons uh, worth covering before you kind of decide to, I mean, you came to New York City, uh, you got into delivery, like what, how, like how did you go from, you know, uh, Otterbox yeah. to delivery specialist? So Otterbox is what brought me out to, to New York. So they, they called and said, hey, we're putting together this new team. You can actually choose from, I think it was San Francisco, L.A., Dallas, um, Chicago, and New York, I believe were the five. And I'd always wanted to, to live here. I actually was born out on Long Island, but my parents quickly moved out, out west. Yeah. So, um, but that said, something had always kind of drawn me to, to New York City. Um, so when I got the opportunity, I, I, I seized it. Um, I worked at Otterbox for a handful of years here in, in New York before deciding to move on to get into more of the startup scene here in New York. And, and at the time, had the opportunity to jump on board with Foursquare. Um, if you remember, they were the, the check-in app. Yep. Um, this would have been back in 2014, 2014, 2015. Um, was there for, for a, a very short stint um, before I was approached by two gentlemen who had just started a company here in New York City called Relay Delivery. Okay. Um, which was back me getting back into the, the restaurant industry. Um, and what Relay did was uh, essentially built a technology that it integrated with all the top third-party platforms. So this was Grubhub, Seamless, Delivery.com, E24, and countless others. And essentially any time a consumer placed an order through one of their 
their platforms, or one of those platforms, rather, Relay's technology would receive it and then automatically dispatch the nearest available courier to swing by and pick it up. So think of it almost as Uber, but for food. That's how I pitched it to restaurants until about 90 days later, Travis Kalanick stole my thunder for the first time and, and, and launched Uber Eats. Uh. Um, so I can no longer say that. But um, very fortunate to have the opportunity to build that company with those guys. But I helped them go from about 50 deliveries a day to 20,000. That was five restaurants to 1,000 here in New York City. And that's ultimately what led to you know the idea of, of, of Zool. So when did you join the uh, Relay team? What was that, 2018? Yeah, I believe my first day there was February 25th, 2015. 2015. So that's yeah. right. You had three years with, with uh, Relay before founding Zool in 2018. Correct. That's what it was. Um, what did they teach you about delivery? Like what? I mean, that's a really loaded question, I'm sure. Yeah. But like, what, what was your takeaway from this experience? So it was honestly another crash course in building a business. I mean, it was just literally the three of us. So Mike was was the CTO and, and co-founder. Alex was the CEO and co-founder. And then it was me, um, who was director of sales, um, but wearing many, many hats from customer service to business development to um, some accounting stuff. Yeah. Um, so really got a, a crash course on what it was like to build an early stage company from the ground up that led to you know knowing what to do and what not to do. So what were the biggest lessons about building an early stage company that you, you, you can recollect? You got to be scrappy. You yeah. got to do what, what, what you got to do to, to make it work. I mean, you know, my wife, I'm thankful that she stayed with me, that then girlfriend, now <laughs> wife. But I literally would go to dates with my computer because if a restaurant had an issue, it was me that was... Customer support. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'd leave uh, dates to go do deliveries because we were short-staffed. You know, it really just takes kind of a, a, a different level of grit and... and sacrifice. Really. Sacrifice and, and passion and just buying into the, the overarching mission. And again, we were growing at Relay, so similar to what it was like at, at Enterprise, you know, even though it was just the three of us and um, it was challenging at times, you know, we were we were growing the business significantly and taking over a decent market share from one of our competitors here and... Um, it was just fun to do. So go again, explain the, the, the process that Relay played. So it would, it, it's an aggregator, essentially. Yeah. Think of it as white-labeled back-end logistics for, for restaurants, specific to food delivery. Okay. So, and what do you mean by white-labeled? So they wouldn't have their own couriers. They would essentially outsource that fulfillment to us. So when you, if you think about a kind of a circle here, you've got the, the, the restaurant up top and the customers at the bottom, right? Okay. So that right side of the circle is, let's just say Grubhub in this instance, connects the, 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 the restaurant to the customer, okay. right? Or the customer to the restaurant. We then are the opposite side, or Relay, not we anymore. Um, they would uh, uh, be the other side of the circle that would go from the restaurant to the customer. So it was that back-end delivery was always so you close relay. the loop. Exactly. So... For the, the listeners, the visual is a picture of a circle. Um, at the north part of the circle, you got a dot. At the south part of the circle, you got a dot. From left to right, or from, I guess, clockwise, you're going from the... Um, Let's call it the customer to the restaurant. The customer to the restaurant. Yep. And then what Relay did is re- literally relayed the, the close of the loop from restaurant to customer, getting the food to... Correct. So the customer would order, um, use third-party aggregators... And then you would bring the food to the customer. And this is in New York 2000. 
15? 15. So what is the landscape of online ordering, delivery, these, these type, who exists in 2015? Seamless. I mean, Seamless was the dominant player. They had just gotten acquired by Grubhub at the time, which was Chicago-based. Um, Delivery.com was just coming on the scene. Um, Jed and those guys over there have done amazing things. And then Eat24 was based out of SF as well. Had a little bit of market share, but, but not much. I mean, Seamless was 95% of restaurants deliveries came from that specific platform and seamless was just taking the order they were they delivering at this point they weren't so the way that it worked was that the restaurants had to be in charge of fulfilling the order okay native delivery native deliveries and when you think about that it's very inefficient so if you have if you have your own couriers let's say you got let's say you're a delivery guy you go from call it the meatball shop yeah shout out to your hat um from the meatball shop to the customer right that's good but then you got to go back. Mm-hmm. In logistics, they call that a dead-end trip. So that's a waste of time. Mm-hmm. So Relay's premise was if there's a, a fleet or a network of couriers, when they go from A to B, so meatball shop to the customer, they'll just go to the next nearest restaurant instead of going back. Yeah. Right? So it was a much more efficient. You're just paying per drop. You weren't, hold, you know, you weren't paying those guys to sit around if you had no mm-hmm. deliveries. Um, you know, that was my pitch. I'd go into, into Did restaurants. Like dispatchers or was it just it like all the technology, all the technology at this point? Yeah. Okay. So they had their app, the, the app on their phone. I mean, they're still to this day. Um, one of, uh, the, um, actually they're the largest fleet here in New York and I think they've, they're in, in some new cities too. So, um, they've continued to just be a rocket ship. Yeah. I'm a little like I'm foreign to this, this conversation. I grew up in East bumfuck, New Hampshire. So like we didn't have all these up. I mean like New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, those were like, were I feel like the only markets that could support this type of thing. So you had the critical numbers to make it work. Um, interesting. So, where were you? Paint the picture of where you were in the company with Relay before you're like itching to, to go off and do your own thing. Uh, honestly, I want to say it was about halfway through my, my time there. Um, I was in, you know, as most sales folks or BD folks um, experience, kind of a, a sales slump. You know, I would close a bunch of restaurants and then I'd have to launch said restaurants. So when you're launching them, you're not able to allocate time on actually kind of grooming the, 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 um, the pipeline, if you will. And it dawned on me one day. So my wife is actually an earlier employee at WeWork too. So I'd always kind of been quietly analyzing that shared economies model. And I was like, you know, why don't, why don't we create our own deliveries? You know, as delivery becomes more and more prevalent, it's very clear that the restaurant industry or the, real estate in the restaurant industry was never built with intent of supporting off-premise, which we saw all the time at Relay, right? Our couriers would get in the way of retail customers and the restaurants would hate it. The couriers would hate it because they've got to wait longer, et cetera, et cetera. And I just thought it was incredibly inefficient. So I said, what if we took a very similar model to WeWork where it's multiple offices under one roof, but we actually made those multiple restaurants under one roof. So it was almost a food hall like opportunity, but it was specifically designed to optimize for delivery. And that's how the idea came about. And, um, hit me with that one more time. I'm not sure if I fully absorbed it. Yeah. So, um, again, restaurants as delivery was just exploding in 2015, 2016. Um, you know, to epic proportions, really. I mean, we st- started seeing anywhere from 30 to 50% of restaurants overarching business was going out the door with a courier. Yeah. So when you start looking at the actual infrastructure piece of it, the restaurant was never designed to support 
off-premise delivery. Mm-hmm. So the thought was, if the delivery trend is going to continue to explode in the way that it, that it was, I thought that there was an opportunity to actually optimize the infrastructure for delivery specifically, or off-premise rather. So the idea was very similar to a WeWork, where we would build multiple kitchens under one roof and then rent them out to well-known brands to operate in a delivery-only capacity. Okay. So those were the earliest days, and honestly, it was one of those ideas that I couldn't really shake. You know, and one thing I didn't mention moving out here, one of the other reasons why I wanted to move out to New York City is, you know, it's similar to SF in the sense of you can start a business and, you know, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. So the, the long-term goal here in New York was always to, to, to start my own business. I just didn't know quite yet what it was going to be. But really, it was uncovered while working at Relay that there was an opportunity to, to, to kind of continue to to optimize for delivery and almost ride the the coattails of that trend if you will so um, just to make sure i understand you you saw that there was an opportunity because of the inefficiencies because restaurants weren't designed for delivery so you said if i can put all the restaurants in one spot because now you don't have to worry about the logistics is it where where exactly are you picking up the majority of the efficiencies with having multiple restaurants in one spot so there's a number of ways right um for the consumer you know, I guess taking a step back to delivery is incredibly broken, right? It's no secret the economics are fairly prohibitive of folks being successful in it, uh, largely because of the take rates from some of the, the incumbents in place. But if you just break delivery down in the truest sense, it's one person ordering one meal from one restaurant delivered by one person to one person, right? There's not a single winner in that equation. However, and we'll get into this in a bit, I'm sure, our technology and what is allowed by having multiple operators under one roof is many people can order, maybe a family or an office, can order from many different restaurants delivered by one person to one building. And that batching efficiency and the, the efficiency gains across the, 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 the group there um, are fairly significant from an economic standpoint, a time standpoint, and just a better overarching experience. So, so in your mind, you're thinking that the biggest inconsistency or the biggest inefficiency from our model with Relay was that the driver had to relocate to the next restaurant, which correct or back to the but, original restaurant. Yeah, so that was what Relay was solving originally. And and. And then you said, well, this could be even more efficient if we put all the restaurants in one spot because then you don't have to worry about the, the dead legs, basically. Correct. And, and if you think about it, there's a lot of shared um, economies under under one roof as well. You can share labor. You can share rent. Rent. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, you can share. Uh, the long-term goal is is always you know vertical integration from product procurement all the way to fulfillment and everything in between. Um so the idea was let's have kind of a, a community of, of restaurants and we're able to, to, to prove better economics, prove better, you know, efficiencies a, across the ecosystem. And, you know, that said, it all started with just the infrastructure, right? Again, going back to the, the actual restaurant, you know, I was even doing deliveries at the time and I'd have to swim through retail um, you know, consumers to go pick up stuff from the you know front of house. Um, that's not a good experience for me and it wasn't definitely not a good experience for the the walk-in consumers as well. So I wanted to delineate those at the earliest onset. So one of the things I'm thinking I can't help but think of is like, what's going to, what are the odds that say the scenario that you gave where there are maybe five people that want to order from five different restaurants, what are the odds that all five of those people want to order from the concepts that are underneath that one roof? It's a good question. Honestly, we, we do our best to have, 
a plethora of or really cover all of the cuisine types from pizza to burgers to Thai to Chinese to, um, you know, you name it. We try to keep a, a pretty well-balanced menu set so that everyone does get what they want, right? That family of four, family of five. The parents can order one thing and the kids can order something else because, you know, across America, that's never. Yeah. No one's ever aligned on that. And similarly to an office, too, you know, historically catering is. Well, we're going to do Mexican this this Tuesday. You know, it's going to be a, a chafing dish of, of beans and, and meat and fajitas, whatever it ends up being. But we now partner with a bunch of restaurants or, or excuse me, um, offices around the, the city where each person gets to individually order what they want from a, a specific restaurant. And then it's delivered by one person. Uh, so are they given the options you can order from any of these options? Correct. OK. Yeah. Um, so. This was in 2018 that you had the idea that if we could put all these restaurants in one spot, it would be extremely more efficient. Uh, When did you actually start doing this? When did did you actually start executing executing this model? Yeah, so it was technically 2017. So it was November. I remember this because it was – I knew it was either going to be a hell of a story or I wasn't going to get married. But I (laughs) essentially quit my job. On a Thursday, that was my official last day. The following day, on Friday, I proposed to my then girlfriend, now wife. Again, it was either you proposed be, before or after you quit. Well, t- technically after. Oh, I would have done it before. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely, uh, it, I, I had alignment. She knew I was quitting. Uh, it was actually the second time that I've gone um, for a while without a salary. It, it was actually so early at Relay that uh, they couldn't pay me, so I was just making commission. Um, so she's supported me twice now, uh, which I'm, I'm thankful You're a lucky for. guy. I know. <laughs> um, but anyway, so it was end of November. I, I officially was done with, with Relay and then ultimately had to get my ducks in a row of creating the company, et cetera, et cetera. So the uh, official date of Zool's incorporation, I believe, was J- January 30th, 2018. Um, fast forward to the summer is when we closed our pre-seed round, uh, which was effectively we raised money to open up the first facility. We signed our first lease in Soho. This would have been November of 2018, so a year after I was done with, with Relay. Um, and then we opened up our doors the following September. September 2019 is, is when we went live, our, our first facility in, in, uh, in Soho. Um, Talk about foresight, dude. You know, it took almost two years to get to the point. I think people need to keep that in mind. When you're starting a business, it takes time. Like, you don't just, like, open. Totally. Like, it takes time to, like, gear up and to figure out how you're going to – especially if you're inventing a whole new way to do things. you got to find investors. you got to pitch the idea. Um, So, you basically, like, you were ready to start exercising this concept three, four months before COVID came. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we went live – I think Sweet Green was actually the first delivery that went out of our facility, which was exciting. And that was... It's a great brand to have in your corner, too. Yeah, we, we got lucky. They're, those guys are great over there, and congrats to, to them on their upcoming IPO. Um, it was the day after Labor Day, so what was that in 2019? It was like September 3rd or September 4th was, was the first delivery. Okay. Um, doors open. So how much are you allowed to like share with what your tech stack look like to execute this like because you didn't invent all the technology no you just did the the research to find out what to plug together to execute right yeah so the tech has actually been um you know it's been it's been a journey so we actually didn't have the technology when we went live september 2019 actually before you get into this i think now's a great time to take our first break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back 
Yo, Unstoppables, I want to use this ad space to let you know about an affiliate relationship I have with the company Mies. Actually, Mies has been a past sponsor, but they've adopted this really great affiliate program and I want to give it a shot. But here's the thing, I won't get credit for your referral unless you use my specific, special, unique link. And that link is getmees.com slash unstoppable. So if you listen to this ad and you want Mies, make sure you use that link. And instead of actually uh, recording a new ad, I really like the first one I did with them. So I'm just going to roll it and uh, let the ad work. It's magic. Here it is. Here are four reasons why you need Mies in your restaurant. One, it's the most accurate recipe costing tool on the planet. Never again waste time trying to find yields and converting unit measures or creating extra sub recipes just to account for yield updates because Mies has a database of thousands of ingredients and prep actions with yields and conversions built right into the interface. So you get immediate output of your costs and your conversions. That's huge. Number two, you will train your staff the right way and save countless hours your team sees in real time updates of all the recipe content plus you can send notifications and answer questions directly through me's quickly and easily create slideshows with video and image so you can show your team exactly what they need when they need it here's the third reason why you need me's in your restaurant you will reduce waste and execute with consistency me's enables you to make precisely the amount of food you need and that's because every ingredient has automated unit conversions Tell me how many portions you want. Watch your recipe scale automatically. Tell me how much yield you want. Watch it scale automatically. You can even enter the amount of ingredients you have on hand and then watch the recipe scale automatically. Here's the fourth and final reason why you need Mies in your restaurant. It organizes and shares your content like never before. Mies is like Google Drive specifically for the culinary operation. Here's your call to action. Go to get Mies. That's M-E-E-Z dot com slash unstoppable and make sure you mention restaurant unstoppable when signing up to get three free months when you get the annual business plan get on it we're back and you're just starting to get into uh the tech stack and how you how you kind of duct tape this the system together and i'm just curious to see why you chose certain technologies over other and 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 why you i mean this wasn't that long ago it's only a year and a half two years ago so it's still relevant it's still relative or relevant, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no. So, again, we went live early September 2019 and very quickly realized that it was very challenging for these operators to be successful when they're solely relying on the incumbents. So Grubhub, SeamlessDeliver.com, what? DoorDash, Uber Eats. That portion of the business, when you have a brick and mortar. And when you say these restaurants, you're talking about virtual restaurants. Uh, in theory, yes, but you got to remember our, the brands that were inside of our our facility when we opened were very well known brands. So they weren't technically virtual restaurants. These were restaurants that had clout and brand awareness. Um, this was Sweet Green, Sarge's Deli, Naya, Junzi, um, top tier brands here in New York City. Uh, we were very fortunate to to align with them on on the strategy at the earliest onset. That said, when you take away the retail walk in business. And your 100% of your revenue comes from somebody that's taking 30% of every check, becomes very prohibitive. Prohibitive uh, in terms of being successful and in, in, in running a profitable P and L. So we realized that almost 
into month one, month two. Um, and we very quickly realized that we needed to iterate and kind of move into what was going to be phase two of our business all along, which was driving demand for our operators. So we actually talked to a bunch of investors and um, one of our investors, Stephen Finn, put us in touch with a um, gentleman who he had just spoken to down in Philly um, who ran a company called Entree Technologies. And what Entree did was essentially um, very comparable to Chow Now. It was just a white-labeled ordering platform that would integrate with your native website. So if you had ericspizza.com, you could partner with Entree, and they would actually give you that ordering platform within within your actual website. So we were very lucky to, to, to align with Tyler over there, um, who's now our CTO, but we, we acquired Entree. Um, I think I actually signed the deal December 31st, 2019. So right, right before we went to a concert at Madison Square Garden that night. That was a good, good celebration. But um, we essentially then broke that technology or stripped it down rather to just its ordering functionality. And the premise of it was to allow consumers to order from multiple brands at once. Again, because we had all of those heavy-hitting brands under one roof, we could allow that end user to actually have a better experience than if you just were using Uber Eats or DoorDash, et cetera. Um, so we were well on our way to, to building that technology and figuring out what our go-to-market strategy was when, you know, fast forward, what was it, all of 75 days, we were hit with a once-in-a-century global pandemic that changed everything um, i mean i don't know if it was good for you or bad for you maybe like if you had a couple of years to like work out the bugs before like you know the whole world needing you i don't know like i feel like but still the, the timing is almost serendipitous um you said something um driving something for the restaurants you know you had to drive was a revenue or business for the restaurants revenue yeah so when when you say driving revenue, you're you're meaning eliminating the 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 service charge essentially, yeah. third party service charge. Because we you know had healthy margins on the real estate front, that allowed us to actually charge significantly less than what the incumbents charge, which obviously drives a more profitable business for the operators. So the whole idea there again was working towards vertical integration, right, from product procurement to to fulfillment and everything in between. Um, the idea was, hey, rent space from us. And then we're going to drive a shit ton of business for you, which is going to help with our churn, right? Hopefully eliminate it altogether and makes the operators that much more profitable. Yeah. Right? Our mission was to help people thrive in the business of food. And historically speaking, delivery can be a very broken model from a yeah. P&L perspective. So we could fix that. So I know for a while, the biggest challenge for most restaurants was that they didn't have a way for people to order from them directly. And you solved that with Entree. Correct. Um, but how are you still driving traffic? Because I, I know that the argument for these third-party platforms is like, hey, this this is a marketing fee. You yep. know, like you wouldn't have this business if we weren't so great and send so much traffic to you because yep. we're an aggregator. How does giving a restaurant an ordering solution drive traffic? Yeah. So. This was the, what we had to figure out, right? My co-founder and I aligned on, on what our go-to-market strategy was. And it, it really wasn't until really early days of the pandemic that we knew exactly how we were going to do it. Um, one thing was very clear. We didn't want to compete with Uber Eats, DoorDash, Grubhub. You know, those guys have built billion-dollar businesses selling a dollar for 80 cents, mm-hmm. right? Um I don't have the war chest of cash that they had. So I knew <laughs> even though it was David and Goliath, there was no chance I was winning that. So I wanted to stay away from the direct-to-consumer, which is what they are. 
However, I thought that there was a, and my co-founder and I, you know, we both thought that there was an incredible opportunity to support from a B2B perspective. And one of our investors, Silverstein Properties, actually, which looking over at the the World Trade Centers right now, um, they were looking to figure out how to safely and in a very COVID conscious manner get their tenants who are in the office uh, food safely. And it's ironic that Sweet Greens was your first company because I know that this was a big move. They were trying to own the the, the business complexes, the office buildings. Yep. And, and they've done an incredible job yeah. doing that. And their timing was a little off <laughs> when all the office buildings are vacant. Totally. <laughs> but they had a, the right idea for sure. Yeah. I didn't realize that you guys were a key component to that. Yeah, so a, a little less um, – to sweet green success, I, I can't take any credit for that. Those okay. guys, those guys are brilliant. They were a little bit before before our time on the, the office strategy. But the idea was we would partner with either landlords of entire buildings or tenants within a building, and we would effectively white label the entree technology, right? So all of a sudden, it looked like it was their own companies ordering platforms. So very similar to a Grubhub or a DoorDash, but all of a sudden their logos and their names were all over it or branding rather. Um, and then it allowed a, 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 a unique and one could argue a better offering to their, their employees by allowing them to all order what they want, right? No one's getting the same cuisine every day. Now all of a sudden somebody could order a salad from Sweetgreen or, or, you know, uh, uh, a chicken shawarma bowl from, from Naya. And again, it gets delivered simultaneously. To the, to the office. So you go to the office building. You say, hey, office building, we have this great way to make every one of your employees happy because we can bring all the food from anywhere in the city to them at once. Uh, and you, then you're also going to the restaurants and saying, hey, we're going to put your brand, your colors, your logo on this website. What would the like? What website are you giving the office building how do they know where to go is it zool.com so it was actually flipped so it was actually the office or the landlord that was we were using their branding right so let's say who's a uh, uh, a partner of ours public so public is a awesome new um, startup that allows you to buy fractional stocks it's got kind of a, a, a social aspect to it. think of robin hood and twitter had a baby that's public um I could geek out over their business um, for hours, but uh, they're one of our partners. So if you actually go to their URL, which I, it's a live site and I don't want people to place orders there, um, but you'll see Publix logo all over it. You'll see Publix branding all over it. Um, and then it has all of our restaurants on there, kind of a brand carousel, if you will, that allows that Publix employees to actually order from all of our brands, again, simultaneously, that each employee can order what they want. Um, and it just allows for a more unique and, and better offering to, to those folks. So it's the, it's the office building or the place it's going to has a unique URL. Correct. And what would that URL be? So it's typically their name dot zool dot menu. Okay. So I just gave away and then you train your employees. Well, you yeah. just kind of gave, gave away what? Gave away Publix, but you actually have to have a, a public email to actually order it from there. So oh. it should be good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you would you would go to that unique URL that was unique to the location that you're delivering to a, a landing page or just a website a page. Yep. Um, you would train your your staff, your employees to say if you're hungry. Order from this website. Correct. Um, what was the, was there initiative? Was there a benefit aside from like what was the benefit to the employee from using that one website? Just the fact that you're going to get your food all at the same time, or is it, is it 
Yeah, that's so, yeah. So there's actually a ton of features, and this is another reason why we chose the B two B route. Is there's actually a lot of companies here in New York that will actually subsidize or, or pay for the employees' meals. So if you want a free meal working in public, you're going to go to that website and and, and order from it. Um, our back end takes care of all of the the per diems and, and whatnot. So um, you can still order from the incumbents, but you'll have to pay for it. Whereas you won't if you you have to go through um, our site. Okay. And then you're going to all these different restaurants that are in the city and you're saying, we're going to give you space under our roof. So it's a good question. So we have hubs, right? So our, our facility in Soho is a, is a hub. So any partner of ours on the, the, the B2B side, whether it's a landlord or a tenant or, or a company, they will be routed to our hub in Soho. However, if Say there's a startup or a law firm that's in Midtown. Um, we actually partner with Urban Space, who are some of the most well-known food halls here in the city. Um, we layered our technology on, onto all of their vendors and effectively turned them into a ghost kitchen overnight. And then we can now service in the trade area that is Midtown. So all you did is you took the same strategy model, the the framing, the infrastructure, uh, and you plugged a food court into it. Correct. Okay. Correct. So it actually happened semi-organically. So over the, the course of last summer during the pandemic, we had seen so much success with Silverstein running this new program that we announced it publicly. And there was actually a ton of other folks in the Midtown area, as well as Silverstein, who had a property up there, that were looking for the service. And so we've, you know, we sat back and we're like, well, we can't just launch a ghost kitchen overnight. I, I went over that timeline earlier, right? We signed the lease November of 2018. We didn't open until September of 2019. Um, so we said, what can we do with our technology that'll help us accommodate folks up in that trade area? And so we looked for other multi-brand operators that were under one roof. That's food halls. was a, a, a no-brainer. So we aligned with Eldon and, and the team over at Urban Space and layered on our technology. And all of a sudden, we had a, another ghost kitchen in Midtown damn near overnight. And that's when we realized... Are you looking to connect with other food hall absolutely well, maybe i can help you with that absolutely <laughs> we're always looking to connect with, with food hall operators but that's honestly how it came about you know we're no longer opening up facilities we're, we're a tech company that um you know goes out and and finds the the, the b2b opportunities and then finds operators to support that and we offering mar- a path of least resistance marry the two yeah yeah so when you say hub you'd basically you'd have one so i'm the office building uh, i place my order there's 50 orders all those orders would go to the hub, and when, when, once the last order has reached the hub, then it goes out to the... No, so everything's cooked at the hub. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we, you know, and there's other folks in the market that do things a little bit differently, but we've always thought that, you know, product integrity means a ton. Freshness. When, yeah, yeah, when you look at, when you look at, at, at off-premise, um, it's incredibly challenging to maintain 100% product integrity. I don't know if until there's robots cooking it on the way to to um, to deliver it, I don't think we'll ever uh, reach that 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 state. But um, I don't know, man. <laughs> it's scary. I know. Maybe <laughs> the technology's um, there. It's just a matter of whether people are okay with it totally. happening. Yeah. Totally. Um, but we thought that you know we could take food halls or, or other ghost kitchen operators and you know again send them business and because it was all cooked under one roof and our technology helps them time things accordingly so it gets fired at the appropriate time or it gets done at the appropriate time um you know we we didn't want external food coming in and then having to go out we want to keep it as tight knit as possible and make it just one delivery because that'll lead to the best experience so in this hub is it just like a open space with like low boys and like 
Just like shoulder to shoulder, different concepts, different crews from different restaurants all working next to each other. So you've been to a food hall. So that's, it's pretty common. It's pretty, it's a, a typical food hall rather up in, up in Midtown. Um, but again, our, our hub or our facility in Soho is, you know, there's, it's 5,000 square feet. There's, we built nine private, you know, four walled kitchen suites. Um, so honestly, it looks a lot like a, a WeWork. Okay. Know? Instead of glass offices, it's, you know, 285 square feet with a 10 foot hood. Oh, that's awesome. Next time I'm in town, can I get a tour? Absolutely. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> um, what have, have we, have we not covered any element of this bigger picture yet? No, I mean, again, we could go on for hours, but I think we, we got the, the gist of it. So I guess what I'm curious about, um, there's just in your mind, now that we've kind of covered your model for what you do and what your solution was, um, I mean, are you able to share the different technologies that you leverage that you've that you've chosen to be your solution and why you chose those? Yeah, we try to keep it as simple as, as possible. You know, again, on the front end, um, it's our system. It's our technology Entree that you purchase. Yeah. Um, you know, there's obviously technologies that we partner with Stripe and other folks that help that engine um, really hum but then on the, the on the the other side of the equation is the logistics you know relay continues to be a big partner uh, of ours but then we also have a, a handful of other logistics um, partners that help us with a bit more white labeled uh, delivery so or white gloved excuse me delivery what's the difference between white glove and white label uh well i didn't mean to say white label it's oh slipped. <laughs> i talk about white label all day sometimes it just what do they call that a freudian slip yeah um so white glove you know for instance actually the world trade centers uh relay doesn't have the appropriate insurance because a lot of their folks are, are are 1099 um so we actually partner with a, a company here in new york called mpd who historically has done document delivery Right, so more kind of mail messaging services, um, but throughout the pandemic, they pivoted as well and saw that they could, you know, capture some some upside with with the boom of food. Um, so we partner with them, and they're the ones that actually deliver to a lot of our kind of nicer commercial buildings, such as the World Trade Centers, Hudson Yards, et cetera, um, who you know may require certain types of insurance to get through the doors. Got it. Um, so really, it's it's again our technology to to recap our technology on the the front end, and then you know logistics providers on the back end. And if you said this and I missed it, are you working with consumers now? Is you, you you're not competing with like you said the the Ubers, the the, the Grubhubs. You're doing strictly business where there's a bunch of people in one spot. Correct. Um, wh- I'm just curious. I mean, do you do you touch or look into that world of do you know it well enough to comment on it? The world of, you know, I can't, what's the word you use? Um, D to C. D to C. Thank you. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel like I know it well. It's just, again, you know, I got to give these guys credit. These guys being Uber Eats, DoorDash, Grubhub, I got to give them a bit more credit. You know, they've, they have built massive businesses making delivery fairly easy to do for restaurant operators. I mean, they literally send you a tablet, you send them photos and a menu they flip the switch and you get orders day one. It is literally that easy. Mm-hmm. The reason why delivery had never been successful prior to that is because it is inherently incredibly difficult to do delivery on your own from a marketing perspective. You know, how do you get your brand and your name in front of consumers? And these guys just aggregated it. And they became incredibly sticky with express reordering and other features that they have in their in their, you know, app uh, functionality. And they're nothing more than marketing engines. Yeah, they they lowered the the resistance to get food. Totally they made it easy for the consumer, and everybody swarmed. Totally. Um, what 
when it comes to like when I'm talking to somebody and they're asking me like, well, what, what's the best practices for doing delivery or to do I go with third parties? Do I stay away from third parties? My, from what I understand, the best thing to do is you want to be on those third party platforms to be discovered. Yep. But you want to have some type of process for offboarding people or to provide some type of incentive that's better than the the least path of resistance, right? Whether Bingo. it's a discount or whatever. So, um, that being the case, I mean, I know rudimentary the best things, but what are the details of that best practice if you if you know them? Yeah. So you, you, you semi hit the, the nail on the head in, in terms of the, the appropriate playbook. Um, to start out, you have to embrace the third parties. They're, they're your best friends. Um, pay them as much money as you can to be as close to the top as possible. Um, but then equally pay as much money as you can. And Do you think that's ethical? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's pay to play. If you get the money, yeah, it's marketing. The, yeah, it's, I know. It's, you're either paying Facebook, Google, or Uber Eats, DoorDash, etc. Okay, right. Um, so pay to to get to the top, um, and then pay as much money as you can to convert them to first party as quickly as you can. That the third parties are incredible opportunities to acquire customers, and I would look at that on the P and L as purely customer acquisition, but you need to convert them over to first party as quickly as possible. And Pay as much as you can to convert them to first party as possible. Correct. Translation, make them order from your website. Correct. Um, and pay as much money. What do you mean by that? Do you whatever, literally give do whatever, the customer money? Do whatever you need to to make sure that they go to your website or your app to order from you for the second time and not back to the third parties. So, I mean, I, and it's hard for me. God, I can't wait to like open my own restaurant. So yeah, that's what I say now until I actually fucking do it. Yeah, right? yeah, but, uh, <laughs> but, um, it's cause I wish I could t- like go through some of these motions other than just try to understand through other people telling me what to do, you know, like, it'd totally. be nice to see it. But I guess what I'm trying to say, like when you say pay, are you like, are you literally like offering discounts if they order? Yeah. From is that the that, best way? But you're just taking less money from them. That's one of them. Um, there's another company here in New York that I'm incredibly fond of and admire what they're doing um, called Bicky B I K K Y. The founder over there is Abhinav, and, and I believe his wife, uh, he and his wife started it actually. Um, but they're what I believe to be is New York or not New York's the, the restaurant industry's first ever CRM. So anytime somebody on a third party actually orders to your, your your restaurant, it'll actually go into the Bicky system, and then Bicky does its magic on the back end to convert them to first party. So whether that's Facebook ads or email marketing, whatever it may be, but instead of going back to, let's say, Grubhub or DoorDash to order from that restaurant again, you're actually going to their native either app or, or website. Um, I would pay Bicky as much money as, as you feasibly can to, to ensure that you are converting as many customers as you can. So that was Bicky, B-I-K-Y? B-I-K-K-Y. B-I-K-K-Y. Yeah. Um, and they do what the third-party aggregators do, but they just don't charge you for... No, so they're not sending you business. They're just helping you convert from third-party to first-party. Okay, got it. Yeah. Uh, I've also heard about this practice, and I know with Toast, you can have multiple menus on the back end of Toast. So mm-hmm. you can have the the menu that your servers are pulling from when they're putting the, the orders in, but you can also have separate menus that are like mirror menus that the online orders pull from, right? Yep. Where do you stand on the practice of increasing the prices by 30%? Do it. So that... 
do okay. it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, if I'm, you know, ordering food in my boxers on the couch, ready to watch football, there's no reason I should pay the same exact price as if I got up to walk into the restaurant to order it. Yeah. Right. You got to pay for the convenience. I see the, the way if I mean, and I don't know this for certain, but like the, one of the, the approaches I like is the idea of increasing your rates for the third party. So you're, you're still making the same money because you're, you're, you're just paying it forward. Right. Right. Um, and then you, you're very transparent about that saying, Hey, we're so psyched. You discovered us on this platform. If you want to save 30%, then order from our website. You know, I think that's the best way to do it. Cause you shouldn't, I think, you know, we we get into trouble cause we, we're always, we're constantly discounting. We're constantly, we're just, we give, 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 give. And we paint ourselves into this corner where we condition the consumer to think that food's cheap, Yep. you know, and we need to stop that. Because it's where we, the industry, is suffering as a result of it. So we need to charge people what food's worth Agreed. and what it costs to produce that. So I think we need to pay it forward. And I think we should probably make that into kind of like a uniform like practice. So we're all together paying the charging the consumer what food's worth. And then we can create other habits like ordering directly from us if we want to save money. Right? Bingo. Um, I mean, that's what I think needs to happen. Would do, is there a different approach that you would take i mean i think that's that's one strategy i think there's you know there's that strategy there's bicky there's um countless others but i think that all of those strategies together make a a a fairly robust playbook on how to operate delivery successful if there's one other strategy that you're aware of we don't need to unpackage all the strategies but if there's one other strategy that you're aware of that you think is a good strategy what is it virtual brands okay what do you mean by virtual brands I mean, listen, there's not a single, as I point to all the listeners here, as I point to the city, there's not a single kitchen over there right now or here in Brooklyn or anywhere across the country that's at 100% utilization. There's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't spin up a virtual brand, even if you get two to three orders a day. It's, you know, as long as you're not ordering a brand new cuisine or ingredient type um, to, to accommodate, um, there's absolutely no reason why you can't have a mini R&D um, you know, uh, aspect of your, your business in that back kitchen, finding out what works, find out what doesn't. If you're a, you know, a burger shop, there's no reason why you can't spin up Eric's chicken sandwiches. Chicken's, you know, the hot thing right now. So the approach to that, the reason why you're recommending this approach is because you're, you're still leveraging those third parties, but your operational expenses are so much lower that you have a greater margin that you're not being hit as hard. Correct. I mean, it's cross-utilization of labor. It's cross-utilization of, of ingredients. Um, and again, you could have 20 virtual brands. And if you get two orders per brand, it's an extra 40 orders a day on top of whatever your core brand is. Okay. I think this is this is kind of where I want the conversation to go to talk about the future, different models that people should be considering. Um, but we're going to take one more quick, quick break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back. What is one of the most overlooked and important marketing tools out there? It's your menu. And honestly, I cannot blame owners for overlooking their menu. It can be super tedious and boring work. Let's be honest. Not to mention it's time consuming between all the other channels of marketing, i.e. social media, direct mail marketing, and managing your operations and customer relations. Who has the time to dink around with their menu? Not many people, right? So that's why I'm super excited to introduce to you 
pop menu, the restaurant tool to turn more first-time guests into regulars. From the website to the marketing to the contactless ordering, Pop Menu is the full digital solution for your restaurant. Pop Menu also provides a dynamic mobile-friendly menu that hooks your customers from the start. And this is a really cool tool. Diners have the ability to leave dish reviews, which really helps your menu speak for itself. Beyond these engaging features, Pop Menu provides marketing tools to build long-lasting relationships with your guests. For example, you have the power to send automated texts and emails to incentivize new orders or promote new dishes. You can even set up online ordering and delivery direct through Pop Menu. This means less ordering complications and loss commission to third-party apps. We all love that. Frankly speaking, when Pop Menu reached out to me to be a sponsor, I didn't know much about them. We all know my rules that I only promote the tools and services that are recommended on the show. So I had to reach out to my network to get their approval. And I have to tell you, the feedback has been nothing but positive. People really like the menu review feature, the email marketing integration, and the fast and friendly customer support, which cannot be overlooked. For a limited time only, get $100 off your first month, plus you can lock in one unchanging monthly rate. Go to popmenu.com slash unstoppable. That's $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you're already using, like Toast, to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven s h i f t s dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. We're back, and we just started talking about. I mean, I asked you for like a different solution. You virtually you came right out and just said virtual brands. We unpackaged that a little bit. Um, do you remember your train of thought? Yeah. So uh, again, it, it all comes down to to throughput and utilization of the kitchen, um, and. You know, there's certain strategies that, that go into virtual brands, you know, like great branding and, you know, front-facing uh, uh, products for, for, for that particular brand. But, again, you know, there's no reason why you can't, can't cross-utilize your ingredients or cross-utilize your, your labor um, to spin up these virtual brands that ultimately could lead to incremental business that you may be leaving by the wayside by not exploring and kind of having that R&D opportunity within your kitchen. So what are your thoughts on um, a 
someone who develops a virtual brand and then they franchise that virtual brand and give other restaurant owners the privilege or the 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 right to use their recipes and their brand uh and basically they cook other people's food and sell it out of their restaurant what what do you think about that model i think it's franchising 2.0 yeah you know um so what is that that's a neutral answer <laughs> <laughs> i mean listen i think there's there's a number of ways to go about it. The thing that scares me the most is quality control, right? And quality assurance. You see what folks like Mr. Beast is doing with VDC or virtual dining concepts or what, what is it? Uh, Alex and, and Nextbyte are doing with, I think it's Tigabytes. Um, in theory, that all works. What are they doing just in case people don't know? So these, these are virtual brands that are collaborating with influencers, Right, because the toughest thing marketing exactly the, the toughest thing with virtual restaurants or just ghost kitchens in general is you can't drive by and see them exactly. Your, your most <laughs> effective means of marketing in the industry today is still your brick and mortar. Yeah, people going by either by car or or by foot. Um, so how do you capture the the uh, uh, the upside in, in, in that? It's it's leveraging influencing market exactly yeah. exactly and. It feels gimmicky at times, but it works. You know, Mr. Beast launched how many restaurants overnight um, and drove significant revenue because he's got, what, 50 million YouTube subscribers yeah. and an obscene amount of Twitter. In a condensed and condensed area. Exactly. Yeah. However, it still comes down to the product and the operator that's cooking said product. And that's what makes that, that, that business challenging is, you know, you can leverage all of these underutilized kitchens across the country – but the product has to be uniform. The reason why McDonald's is so successful is you could be in Tokyo or you could be in L.A. and that burger is going to taste the same. Yeah. For so the most part. My biggest pet peeve, or not pet peeve, but I guess the thing that doesn't rub me the right way about this business model is that, I mean, part of the issues with the virtual kitchens and, and third-party aggregators is that they take this huge percentage. You're also taking like these these companies that give you the right to use their brand and their recipes are also taking a big percentage. So I mean, are the margins there unless you're doing multiple like you said throughput, if you have if you're just doing insane volume I just I don't see a world where you can have your cooks trained on four different menus. I mean, I do, but that's also going to be a challenge with the labor issue Tough. right now too. Yeah. So like I don't know if that's the solution, you know, and um, we, I explored this. I, I spoken to people that uh, episodes never made it to the show and I just don't feel confident enough in telling people that this is a val- you know, viable option just because of, of that, because they, they take the, the, you know, the, I don't know if the margins are there. Yeah. The margins are tight. Yeah. Right? I mean, they're tight industry wide. It's, there's no secret there, but if done correctly, you know, maybe you do get a point or two out of it. Yeah. And but- while I say just a point or two. You and I both know that that moves the needle yeah. in the industry. So, um, you know, you have the labor there for the most part, hopefully. Um, who, who knows so much longer? Yeah. Um, you have the ingredients there. Like, there's no harm in, in giving a shot, even if you are only capturing a couple points. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, that incremental business can move the needle if done right. Yeah. I, I And I think you alluded to this earlier. I do think that the, the most impact – the most, the thing that excites me the most about ghost kitchens or virtual kitchens or spirit kitchens, whatever the fuck you want to call them, um, is the that it lowers the bar, the, the the barrier of entry. Totally, and I think that's the most exciting thing. Like I could start my concept tomorrow 
as long as I just had a kitchen to work out of. Totally. Right. Um, and I think that's the exciting thing because it's not, no longer does it take 500,000 to a million dollars to start a restaurant. Totally. You start with a dinner party, which turns into a dinner event that like you make public to that turns into pop-ups that turns into a virtual kitchen. Totally. You know, and I think that is just one step closer to getting to a brick and mortar and, and being something that can sustain you because your overhead is so low. It's better. It's more affordable than a food truck. Agreed. I, I will say, I will push back just a, a hair on Please, that. Please, I don't know everything. I have none of the answers. Yeah. That's why I'm here. Well, know that that was my thinking too, right? It was, it gone were the days that you needed to open up a million-dollar brick-and-mortar in New York City to be successful when you can open up inside of our first facility for $50,000. That said, you want guaranteed success. You open up for $50,000, but you take that other $950,000 that you're not spending and put it towards marketing. Yeah, well, because you're going to need it. You need it. Yeah. Um, unless you're, but you know, I, I was actually just talking to, to Michael uh, Chernow, who's behind, uh, who was behind um, the meatball shop and uh, Seymour's. Um, but he, Great brand. yeah, he is an influence and in, like he's kind of taking the, the the lifestyle brand approach. So he kind of got out of the restaurant industry, and his focus now is on developing a lifestyle brand. Uh, and he's going to sell products and services through the brand. So I think that. I think it's important for restaurant tours to stop looking at this this one model of how to do business and start thinking outside the box. And maybe if you want to be a restaurant tour, don't start with opening a restaurant, but start with developing a brand totally that has a following, so you can influence your own stuff. You know, there's there's different ways. Um, I would say that's the appropriate order of operations these days. Yeah, because you can start a brand like now. Yeah, like open up. Instagram account, TikTok, yeah, yeah like or anything, like <laughs> you're in business, you yep. know. Uh, it takes time to build, yep. but that's literally my approach. I mean, I, I had this mentality eight years ago where I was like, I can't open a restaurant, two hundred thousand dollars in debt, like. But this podcasting thing is interesting, and I can learn how to open a restaurant and share and bec- develop a brand for myself as a student and, and serving the industry and helping other people who are in the position to open a restaurant. And if I can generate revenue from that, why not? I can get paid to learn how to open restaurants yeah. and then invest in myself and develop a brand. So like that was my whole thought from the very beginning is love that start where you can learning and make and bring people in developing a brand around it and having that be your launch pad. And that's the approach I'm taking. If I'm opening a restaurant, I'm, I'm I kind of already laid it out, but dinner parties to like, you know, you just start where you can totally. like you, just, you just document it. But now you can, now you have a platform to document all the things you're doing to develop this brand and, and that's following. the marketing. Exactly. Yeah. So can you cook too? I mean, I grew up in a restaurant and I'm, I'm not, I have too much uh, respect for the title of chef to say Got that it. I'm a chef or even a cook. I mean, I, I always gravitated towards the front of house, but I can cook. Cool. Um, but if I were to do a concept, it would be like the do one thing really well idea. So I um, love that. Anything we haven't discussed. Um, I mean, what, what is the future of virtual kitchens? Like if you could pre- make a prediction of where we're going to be in 2020, if there's any, or 2020, say, four, 2025, two or three years out, how is this landscape going to evolve? What's your, what's your prediction? I think we'll continue to see vertical integration across the entire space. I think DoorDash, DoorDash is letting us peek into their overarching future strategy. You know, they're starting to cook. They're licensing brands. Um, you know, I know Travis is likely working on the same things as well. It's, you know... Vertical. What do you mean by who's Travis? Travis Kalanick, Cloud Kitchens. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Um, 
I think the pandemic has lifted. I can't remember. Somebody on Clubhouse mentioned this, but it, it, it lifted the calorie swim lanes, right? So when you think about it, grocery used to have its own, delivery used to have its own, on-premise used to have its own, uh, convenience and kind of CPG or, or non-food had its own. Um, and now all of those are kind of converging. And we see it really happening uh, over at DoorDash with Dash Mart. So it's like they're 7-Eleven. They're cooking out of ghost kitchens. So you can order from multiple brands at once. And then it's you know, they're procuring the order, they're cooking the order, and then they're fulfilling the order. They're saying, why do we need the restaurant? Yeah. So, you know, that said, I think there's a lot of us still in the industry, like Zool and Kitchen United and some other, you know, bigger players that um, are still fighting the good fight for the the, the little guy. And I think, um, you know, it won't completely go to vertical integration, but... Um, you know, we're seeing early signs of, of that being a big part of the industry. You uh, did just trigger a thought that I've had a conversation that's come up a few times in a restaurant unstoppable network. Um, this idea of these, these ghost kitchens, third party, or uh, I never know exactly what to call everything. There's so many different names out there, but their, their strategy was to recruit restaurant tours to cook their food. And it seems like there's a newer strategy. Somebody had, along the line said, why are we going to the restaurant tours? Why don't we just go to the guys that they're employing, the cooks, and recruit the cooks? Um, and an already like very slim talent pool, do you think that that's going to be something that's we're going to have to start competing with the DoorDashes and the, the GrubHubs of the world to start? I mean, who can pay the cooks 30 bucks an hour and offer full benefits? For no. now, yeah, um, it's a, it's a good question. It, I don't have a crystal ball when it comes to the labor market and what that's going to look like in the future. I mean, I've got my thoughts, but um, you know, I, I think everyone's racing towards owning more of the the stack. Um, you know, that said, folks paying thirty dollars an hour plus benefits, none of that's sustainable. You yeah. know, the margins are still the margins no matter, you know, who's who's doing it. But obviously vertical integration across the industry certainly helps. Yeah. What do you think ten years from now? It's crazy to think ten years isn't really that long of a time, but in today's age, ten years is the the amount of evolution that's gonna happen with Moore's law of compounding change, you know, like Yeah. I think if you look at more developed countries from a technology standpoint and kind of uh, the evolution of food delivery, such as China and those guys over there order two to three times a day, almost every meal is, is delivery. Um, I think we'll eventually get to a similar place where off premises from a quick service or, or fast casual um, off premise will be the name of the game. You know, the local watering holes and the Cheers bars, those aren't going anywhere, and neither is 11 Madison and kind of those fine dining experiences. But I think everything in between is 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 going to be completely off-premise. Yeah. I think it's important to keep in mind that people like to socialize. I like to use food as totally. an excuse to get out and see people. So I don't know if you're ever – I think I think here's my prediction in the next 10 years. I think we're going to be – maybe not in the next 10 years, but the conversations going to be much more prevalent of being – we're going to exist in a resource-based economy. Uh, and what I mean by that, I think things like food and things like shelter are going to be free. I hmm. think our taxes are going to pay for that. And when you hear that initially as a restaurateur, you're like, I can't make money selling food anymore. No, you're still going to make money because if you think that you're selling food, you're wrong. You're selling experiences, right? Totally. And there's still going to be a market for 
creating experiences. But I think food and certain things are going to be free because we're getting just so good at streamlining things that one person alone can't compete with these huge organizations and companies totally. that are just so good at efficiency. Um, but the result of that is going to be fewer jobs. And the result of that is like, we're going to need, it's, it's going to be some type of like socialistic hybrid model. Hmm. And when people hear socialism, they, they get the hair across their ass. But I mean, I think what, what I say by like a resource based economy is like certain things I think are, aren't privileges, they're rights like food, you know, like and like a safe place to sleep should be some of those things that I think we all have access to. Right. I think that's going to change the game a little bit. Yeah. So I, I can know. see it. I don't know. Maybe that's a little bit of a stretch. No, I I can but, see it. Yeah. I think delivery will just be a big portion of that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Likewise. Uh, thank you so much for making time for me. I'm happy we made it happen. Um, the The mission statement of Restaurant Unstoppable is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. How have you transformed over the years? How are you a better man today than you were when you were wet behind the ears straight out of college? Oh, I don't think how much time we got. <laughs> um, no, uh, no one truly understands just how difficult I think it is to run a company until you're running a company. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was at, at Relay and even previous jobs too, there's, you know, as always, I thought I could do it better, you know, and maybe that's just the, the, the core of every entrepreneur out there is, you know, turn the nose and and I could do it better. Um, but the second that you're in the driver's seat, man, it's tough. Yeah. You know, not only is it lonely up, up, up at the top, but, um, you know, there's, there's just so many aspects and, 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 you know, I, I'm incredibly grateful to have a great support network and, you know, from mentors to my wife, to my family, to my friends. Um, so incredibly grateful there. Um, you know, but in terms of, man, how I've transformed. Um, I think there's also just a whole nother level of empathy that you got to bring to the table Um, from customers to partners to employees, everything in between. You know, I try to look at at putting myself in other people's shoes before I react one way or another. And I think that's helped immensely. So I feel like I could ramble on here for for hours. I'll I'll, I'll stop there. I've loved it. I've loved it. And uh, we... Um, I got to give you an opportunity to let the folks at home know if they want to connect with you or they're interested in your services or whatever, what's the best way to, um, connect? Um, yeah, I mean the classic social handles, uh, or, or sites rather. So Twitter, um, LinkedIn are probably the, the two that I use the most, um, for just random inbounds. Um, but I'll, Never afraid to put my email out there, too. It's just Corey at Zool.com. So it's C-O-R-E-Y at Z-U-U-L.com. All right. And uh, I also have all my guests call somebody out. I don't know if it was during my interview with Kyle and Sarah where he called you out or it was just in conversation. Um, but that's how I like to – the idea behind calling people out is I want this podcast to be an organic podcast by people who rec- – success recognizes success. Right. And – uh I want, and that's, that's, I kind of want to kind of create an engine where it doesn't need me to make any decisions anymore. So if people are curious why I always have my guests call people out, I want to make this thing self-sustaining basically. So who do you respect and admire in the industry 
and uh, somebody that you know you could learn from. If, if you found out there are guests on the show, you'd be tuning into who's who's that person? Yeah, honestly, I'd, I've got a laundry list. There's, I will take multiple names. There's so many people that I <laughs> that I uh, uh, that inspire me on a, on a daily basis. Um, I'll throw two out though. Um, one is is Kristen Barnett of Hungry House. So Kristen actually was our old COO. Um, who, uh, very similarly to me at Relay, jumped in, you know, to the deep end of, of entrepreneurship, and she's got a very exciting company that she's working on that hasn't quite launched yet, and I'll let her fill you in um, on what that is. Um, but then also number two is Michael Astori of, of Ann Pizza. Um, mm. He is an incredibly brilliant and, and kind human that I don't think there's anyone in the industry that looks out for their employees more than than him um and he's someone that i admire uh deeply here in in, in both new york city and just is, is that the, based in new york city or is it based in uh like the dc area they have a ton of locations here but i do think they're based down in dc yeah, that's what i thought yeah. um he's on my radar astoria is the last name is he the one with the long hair la storia la yeah. storia that's yeah. right um Kristen and Michael, look, I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And uh, just again, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and your knowledge, your specialized knowledge around this world of ghosts, virtual kitchens. Uh, There is no questioning, my man. You are unstoppable. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Cheers. There we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Stoppable Network. Thank you so much, Corey Manicone, for coming on the show, getting clarity, speaking truth, uh, not your traditional episode. I mean, the format was traditional, but the, the conversation was not. And uh, I feel like I feel like today's conversation just reinforced what I already kind of knew. And I hope you guys feel the same way. Um, the future of the industry is going to be a hybrid model of what we've been doing and what happened over the past two years. So it's time to evolve. It's time to implement some new practices, but, but don't kiss your traditional restaurant. Goodbye. Either. I guess that's kind of where I'm at with this subject. Uh, again, thank you so much, Corey, for joining us today. And we have a very busy week this week over at Restaurant Unstoppable Network. And I want to let you know what's going on so you don't miss anything. So uh, today, actually, if you're catching this episode, the day it goes live, Monday, October 18th, uh, today at 530, Josh Copel is joining us. Uh, Josh is the host of the Full Comp Podcast. Uh, he's got over 100 episodes now, and we're going to be talking about the three key things that he's learned, the big things that he's learned in his interviews. So that'll be a lot of fun to unpackage. That is at 530 today, the, the day this episode go, goes live. Tuesday, October 19th, we have Coffee with Eric. If you guys have not joined a Coffee with Eric and you want to be a part of the conversation, shoot me an email, eric at restaurantstoppable.com. I'll get you a 30-day trial to the network so you can be a part of the, the conversation. And then Wednesday, we have Peer Mentoring with Nicole Nicella and John Daniels, the owners behind Stock Restaurant in Dover, New Hampshire. Nicole joined me a few weeks ago. Her episode went live, I think, last week. Maybe it was two weeks ago. Uh, a really great chat. And I, I was supposed to connect with John this weekend unfortunately he had some family stuff come up so i don't know if he'll be able to join us monday as well or wednesday as well hopefully he can and then we have another peer mentoring session with michael chernow that is uh 
Friday, October 22nd at 12.30. Michael Trinow, the founder of The Meatball Shop, did amazing things in New York City with The Meatball Shop in Seymour's uh, now has his lifestyle brand. If you're interested in developing a lifestyle brand, I highly recommend you join us for that conversation. So that's what's going on this week in the network. I would love to have you be a part of the conversation. Come hang out. And until next time, peace out.